to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I'm sure you've heard the expression, life is hard and then you die. Well, actually, that's not how it's actually said, but that's how I'm going to say it for purposes of this podcast so that I'm not engaging in blue language of any kind on the, quote, air. But it's been on my mind. I'm not going to be talking about it quite so philosophically as probably the great thinkers of Western civilization have done since the beginning of recorded thinking. But I'm going to talk about some personal experiences I've had in the last, I don't know, while, really, that sort of just have me focusing on it and visualizing it and trying to deal with it, even in the throes of the deepest of my youthful existential angst. I didn't really see the speed with which life would be passing. It's a cliche that the young never do. It's probably a bit of a psychic protection, even as a young depressive, which I think I was. The reality of what a longtime friend of mine has called our decay was theoretical. Most of us, as young people in school, read Shakespeare's famous words from As You Like It regarding the stages of man's life and probably didn't pay attention to it. But now, as I read it, I pay close attention to it. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, yuling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy, with his satchel and shining morning face creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover, sighing like a furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow, then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth, and then the justice, in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all, that ends this strange, eventful history, is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Yep, yep, when you're at the earlier stages, no matter what your psychic moods might be, you just don't see what's going to happen towards the end. You don't want to see, and why should you? Of course, I'm circling the big question why am I here? What's the purpose of life? Is it just you're born, you go through a lot of horrible stuff, and then you die? As you can imagine, I'm not going to answer the question in any significant way because 
I have nothing really meaningful to add to it. I'm just observing it from my particular small part of the universe, my little grain of sand of my participation in the universe, probably really less than a grain of sand. So what got me on all of this, specifically this week? Well, a couple of things. Although it's been out a few years, I finally got to watching the HBO documentary on Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds called Bright Lights, which had been filmed not long before both of them died. I mean, these were two icons. You have Debbie Reynolds, who was the darling of old Hollywood, or towards the end of old Hollywood, you know, in famous movies like Singing in the Rain, cavorting with Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor with great youthful energy because she was, in fact, young when that movie was made. And then her daughter, who, in the role of Princess Leia, was part of saving the entire galaxy in Star Wars. The documentary was a snippet of their lives. Debbie, still at the age of something like 83, still trying to essentially relive and recapture her heyday by going to these various small locales around the country and talking about her life and her musicals to the approval of a, an audience that was essentially the same age as she was. You'd say, well, she had a magical life, and in some ways that's the case. But she also had a life of, I believe, bankruptcy and loss, and a daughter, Carrie, who suffered from manic depression or bipolar disorder now. But through all of that, while they were both young, you could put kind of a mask on the reality of life, the journey through the seven stages of life. But what I was seeing on screen were two regular people puttering around their respective houses, which happened to be in the same compound and essentially next door to one another, almost as one just like any eccentric members of your family, Aunt Carrie and Grand Aunt Debbie, engaging in this sort of dance of parent and child when both parent and child are now old. The armor of fame, celebrity, achievement is now falling away. Also in this week, week and a half or so, I went to another Hollywood Bowl, which happily we got to do again this year after a two-year absence and it was another group of older performers primarily the Tower of Power and Dave Koz and they were really just blowing it out in terms of their work with the saxophones and the singing it was life-affirming in the extreme and then I heard just before the concert that another performer that I had just seen in July, July 4th, in fact, the first of the Hollywood Bowls that I went to this year had suddenly died at his home in New Jersey. Also a saxophonist, also a longtime performer, and he had been really energetic at this show that I saw on July the 4th. I made some kind of a comment related to the fact that he was only, I think, 70 years old, and my companion at the bowl immediately kind of laughed at my tendency always to go to age and compare his age to my age and the 
consequences thereof related to all of us. This friend has known me since my twenties and my early existential angst days. I have to tell you that while I understood and still understand his amusement at me back when we were in our twenties and I was doing that sort of thing, I have a little bit of a harder time understanding how he can dismiss my concerns, and I, I don't mean he's dismissing it in literal terms, but you know, still laugh at my sort of existential angst now that I'm a woman of a certain age, when we're all closer to the reality of the significance of that age and the limitations it inherently puts on our future. So then I come home from this Hollywood Bowl, uh, this last one, and uh, hopefully everybody who was in that show, Dave Cause and the Tower of Power, will remain well for many, many years. But I now am not able to sleep, so I turn on HBO again, and I watch the documentary on Val Kilmer, a once incredibly athletic and beautiful young actor who had developed throat cancer, who's actually younger than me, and uh, although the throat cancer may have been conquered, the radiation that he had completely destroyed his voice box and he has to talk through a tracheotomy tube. So you're confronted with this particular documentary. By the way, interestingly, and one of the things I found most fascinating is that Kilmer kept a video journal all of his life. So you basically have his entire lifetime on video. So again, what you're confronted with is the immense contrast between the young man, the up-and-coming young man, the man of a success of sorts, although he was supposedly very difficult. Um, it sounds like he just was a perfectionist, someone who was trying to get it right. But now you see him frail, old, no real trace of the handsomeness of his young days, trying to make sense of the life that he had and what's left going forward. So for me, it's really personal because if I'm doing my counts on the seven ages of man, I would say that I'm in the sixth stage. And aside from seeing celebrities, famous actors and actresses, oh, reminding me that I just saw a photograph of Gene Hackman on Facebook. And although he is still quite handsome, he's also quite old. And so you see him at some place between, what, the sixth and the seventh stage? So it's not like all that went before is meaningless, but it certainly doesn't have quite the impact now on one's life that it did back when you were young. It's history. And what you're facing now is something beyond, something more. I'm not necessarily here yet talking about the transcendent, but something big that you have to deal with, which is your own fragility that is right in front of you. So what else has gotten me on this? Well, quite frankly, since probably the latter part of the first decade of the 21st century, when my father died at the age of 90, and up to this very moment, it seems that I have been directly... I'm not the only one who has, but I certainly have been confronted by the latter stages of our lives in others. And really, I am just behind them, literally, because I'm a baby boomer, 
and they are of the generation, my mother's generation, I am literally sort of behind them on that moving escalator. I can't pretend anymore, if I ever did pretend, being involved in their lives since the late 2008-9 period, that I'm next in line if I survive, if I don't just simply pass away. The transience that was an intellectual reality, looking at my diplomas as I'm actually talking on this podcast, looking at all the tchotchkes around me that represent moments of my life, they were intellectually transient. I knew it, but now it is a tremendous reality. So what do we people do with that? That's the subject of all the treatises of all the famous thinkers in the existence of man has been debating whether there's nothing and the phrase life is hard and then you die is the essence of things or as for the religious person, is there something more? Something that is being perfected in us through all this turmoil I'm not facing this, and many of us are not facing this in an abstract way anymore. Whether we are going to look at life as essentially meaningless and a preparation for exactly nothing, or as something that has significance in light of a religious foundation. The pedal is to the metal. Now clearly, as an ordinary Catholic, I have chosen so far, and hopefully forever, or till the end of my time, I have chosen the religious approach. But I do wish it sometimes gave me more comfort than it does. I wish it gave the people I know who are religious more comfort than it does. There is a religious version, if you will, of Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. Some people, by the way, say that Shakespeare himself was Catholic. Perhaps so. Some people say that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare, that he was Christopher Marlowe. But either way, there is a corresponding section, probably more than one, but the one I'm looking at in the New Testament related to the same issue. And that's at uh, John 21, beginning at paragraphs 15 through 19. You remember the scene. I've mentioned it before in some other contexts in this podcast. It's after Jesus has been resurrected and he is along the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, watching his disciples, who are very discouraged, of course, trying to get fish, as often was a problem on the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, without the Lord's help, Jesus was along the beach, and the apostles did not immediately recognize him. And so he cooked breakfast for them, and when they came in, he began to be recognized by his disciples as the risen Jesus. And it is at this point that Jesus basically anoints, lays his hands on Peter, who becomes the first ordained priest, in fact, the first pope. For context, let me read that part. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will fasten your belt for you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. Something here makes me think of the poem by Robert Frost, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. You know, the one that ends with two roads diverged in a wood, and I chose the one least traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The fact is that if Jesus had never existed, if his act of redemption had never occurred, we'd still be going through all the things I'm talking about, and perhaps it would be worse in some way. There would be no remedy for our going through the seven stages and all the pitfalls and all the sufferings, ultimately to our decrepitude and death, for which there would be nothing afterwards. But his action coming into the world changes everything in that it provides the divergence in the road that leads to a wholly different outcome than the one straight road to oblivion after a life of effective torment. He joined us, our Lord did, on the road to suffering. And then he holds a little flag up and points us in a different direction. He says, you are going to be led where you do not want to go as I am being led where I do not want to go for your salvation. And the only solution to all of this suffering that occurred as a result of the sin of pride of man is to follow Christ. One of the things that has come to me in watching all of these shows and in living the experience of my elders going through the process of debilitation and seeing the doors of their past lives coming to an end, usually suddenly. I've noticed that it's almost always sudden, not the physical debilitation that occurs, that occurs over our lives, but the moment of the culmination of the debilitation that requires a change of circumstance. Effectively, you are compelled to let go. You can rail about it, but it doesn't change the fact that you are going where you do not want to go. It isn't comfortable, but with God in your purview, you can argue that it is less uncomfortable. But it kind of requires that we don't tell God how to do the business of being God. And that's hard, because we're always grasping at being God. I think that's true of even the best of us. That's why we need him to remind us of his existence as often as possible. And I think that even the person who does not believe is constantly bombarded by his existence, which is why they fight so hard against it and the demands it places on us. I've always been fascinated by the certainty of atheists that God does not exist. I wish I had the same kind of certainty of God's existence. And I have that concern or doubt all the time, notwithstanding my faith. To my mind, it seems to be easier to be an atheist, if you really are, than it is to be a believer, which I am. I told you that I uh, keep a little booklet of quotes that I find helpful to me. 
when I read them in prayer, which sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I'm a very peripatetic prayer person. I'm not very good at prayer. I'm working on it. I have a discussion with a friend who is one of my few friends who will talk about this momentous stuff with me when I'm going through my existential angst. One of two friends that I find I can have these discussions with. She has mentioned a comment that was made to Martin Scorsese, who is sort of a Catholic, but in regard to the movies he has made, uh, I think specifically The Last Temptation of Christ, which of course was very controversial, that a priest said to him, which was, Marty, your movies have too much Good Friday and not enough Easter Sunday. And my friend and I have talked about whether enough that's pretty much true of our lives. Too much Good Friday and not enough Easter Sunday. When you think about it, our lives are a drop in cosmic time. In fact, there is no time for God. So you could argue that our Good Friday is our entire lifetime and that our Good Friday actually has a point because we are attempting to follow our Lord. And that is the denouement, which is the beatific vision, resurrection, the whole thing. I have this little passage from my little pink book that I stick religious bomos in, in an effort to keep myself on the part of the road, the divergence in the road that hopefully will lead to God and to the aha moment as to what it was all about. So this was in the Magnificat, who knows when, going back some, because I've had this book for quite a long time. It was written by a woman named Mother Mary Frances, PCC, and she was, she died in 2006, and she was the abbess of the poor Clare Monastery of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Roswell, New Mexico. It is easy to say, I believe in God, but to say that I believe that God is in control can be very hard really to give him the evidence of the heart, of the soul bowed down before him, sometimes in confusion at what he seems to be doing and not doing, and sometimes in real anguish and to believe. This is the evidence he is asking of us. We tend to think of faith as a lovely thing. Faith is not just a matter of speaking, but it is a matter of believing when it is difficult to believe. Saint Claude de la Colombière the Apostle of Hope said, I hope, and I will always hope, and I will never cease hoping. When it is clear that there is no longer any reason to hope, then I will hope all the more. But in his determination to give all his anxieties over to God, even he had to discover, as we do, that this is very hard to accomplish. We do not really want to let go of them. They are debilitating, they are degenerative of our forward action, and yet it can be very hard to let go of our anxieties. We ask, but how is it going to turn out? It is getting more confused all the time. The skeins are more tangled all the time. Hope is such a strong thing, because it is hope in the face of almost everything not presenting human reason for hope. It's not like this solves the problem, because we're still going to debate it with each other and within ourselves. But I suppose, like Mother Teresa said, we just have to persevere. We have to remain faithful, despite what we see happening to others and what will happen and has happened to us. 
So, another program is at an end. Lots of questions, no answers really. Oh, well, there are answers, but the question is whether or not we're going to accept those answers and which of those answers we are going to accept. So, I leave you until next week, and I hope you're enjoying the program, and I hope you will make a comment or hit like or whatever you need to do to keep me encouraged in this veil of tears.